This week on Double-Edged Sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture, Father John Ricardo talks about the second commandment, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. Ordained in 1996, Father John Ricardo is a priest of the Archdiocese of Detroit. He is the executive director of a nonprofit ministry, Acts 29, which works with pastors and their teams to transform their parish culture and reclaim the church's missionary identity. And now, here's Father John Ricardo. We began to look at the Ten Commandments, reminding ourselves that unless we understand who the God is who's giving these, they lose their meaning for us because they instantly become something like a restriction on our freedom. Whereas the moment that we understand the one who's giving these is the God who liberates from slavery, then we're in a better position to understand who it is who's calling us to live in a particular way. So as a means to review, maybe it's worth just recalling two words which the Lord uses often throughout the Old Testament as a means of doing that review. The two words are remember and forget. One of the strongest commands throughout the Old Testament over and over again is the Lord's words to his people to remember. To remember what? To remember what he's done. Oftentimes, you know, when we think about belief, belief becomes the subjective feeling that we have as opposed to some real events in history that I rely on, most especially the intervention of God in human history. That's what he's calling me to remember. So he's constantly calling the Israelites to remember what he did for them. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt and you had no life. Remember that I dramatically rescued you from that and I pulled you out of slavery and brought you through the desert, feeding you along the way with the manna from heaven and with the quail, bringing you to Mount Sinai where I gave you my law, a revelation of myself, and then brought you into the promised land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey, a land with cities you did not build and plants you did not plant. Remember, 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 remember. That is one of the constant commands in the Old Testament. And the antithesis to that, huh? one of the strongest rebukes, is they forgot. So Psalm 78, verse 11, picking up this theme, speaking about the children of Israel, starts in verse 10, actually. It says, They kept not the covenant with God. According to his law, they would not walk, and they forgot his deeds. The wonders that he had shown them, before their fathers, he did wondrous things in the land of Egypt, in the plains of Zoan. He cleft the sea and brought them through, splitting the Red Sea. He made the waters stand as in a mound. He led them with a cloud by day and all night with a glow of fire. He cleft the rocks in the desert and gave them water in copious floods. He made streams flow from the crag and brought the waters forth in rivers. But they forgot. They forgot all that he had done. So for us, too, one of the constant temptations, because life can be so busy and so filled with distractions, is that we, too, can forget what God has done for us. And so maybe one of the things that we do as we continue to move through this series and also as we prepare for the season of Lent, which is now crashing upon us, is find some way early in the morning when we wake up each and every day to call to mind God's deeds. And then as we go to bed at night, as we do an examination of conscience. Remember last week we spoke about maybe using the commandment we're looking at for that week as a means to do an examine when we go to bed at night. So last week it was, are there any things that I'm putting in front of the Lord? Are there any things that are driving my life and making me a slave versus is the Lord driving my life and leading me to freedom? 
So as we do an examination of conscience when we go to bed at night, maybe one of the things we can add is just call to mind some way that the Lord has made himself known to us during the day so as not to forget and so as not to take for granted. For the great deeds of God are not just in the past. They're not just things that happened long ago that our ancestors experienced. The great deeds of God are in the present. And if our eyes were but open, we would see them every day. And sometimes the great deed is simply his presence to us in the midst of extraordinary unease or a very difficult situation. We prayed last week for a young girl who had a brain tumor, who a week ago today was having surgery and whose life was uh, up in the air. We didn't know what was going on. And today she's home. I mean, she's home already. Out of intensive care, she's home, she's eating, she's playing. Well, trust me that her parents are remembering the great deeds which God has done for them. But not just what he did for their daughter to bring her through this, but also they're reminded that even in the midst of uncertainty and potential disaster, he was there. He was with them. And they only got to experience that by being put into a place where they're tried. Just like each of us, we're in situations in our life where we go through difficult times and we wonder how is God going to show himself. He does. He's always faithful. So find some way to call to mind what he's done so that we can not hear the accusation that the Lord made to the children of Israel so often in the Old Testament, they forgot. That's why a crucifix is so important in your home. So I don't forget what he's done for me. So I can see every day the love that he's manifested to me on the cross. I not take it for granted and remember it. Now some texts. The second commandment is found both in Exodus 20, verse 7, And then remember the Ten Commandments are found in two places, not just in Exodus, but in Deuteronomy. We find it again in Deuteronomy 5.11. And the second commandment is what? You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Which Jesus then amplifies, so that's the second text in Matthew, or the third text we could say, Matthew 5, verses 33 to 34. This is another one of those claims to divinity, by the way, that Jesus is making. You have heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely. Well, now who said that? God. God said it through Moses. Yeah, you've heard somebody say that you shall not swear falsely. But I tell you, thou shalt not swear at all. Let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. So that's Matthew 5, 33, 34. And then lastly, a text to consult, which if you haven't read this week, I would encourage you to read. This is actually the shortest little treatment in the Catechism of the Church on the Commandments. It's all of two pages. One, two. Very digestible. You can read it here in the middle of the discussion. Paragraphs 2142 to 2167. So those are three good texts that we can uh, pray with throughout the week, hopefully. Now, before I dive into the commandment, because this is going to be the shortest talk we give, I think. If the catechism's got two pages on it, I'm going to have to do some amplification here. So I want to do what I call a brief excursus on speech, because that's really what's at the heart of the commandment here. It's one of the things at the heart of the commandment anyway. This commandment, as well as the Eighth Commandment, Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor, really calls us to reflect upon how we speak. Are we truthful with each other? Are we honest? Remember, the commandments are trying to get us to grow in integrity, trying to get us to grow in wholeness, trying to get us to grow in virtue. And it's essential for us, if we're going to ever have communion and community, which is what God has made us for, we're made in the image and likeness of God, God is communion, we're fine happiness by being in communion, Well, for communion to happen, we have to be able to trust one another. In order to be able to trust one another, we have to speak truthfully. Speech is given to you and me so as to speak truth to each other. That's the purpose of it. Not to flatter. There's something better than flattery. It's called honoring. 
Certainly not to lie or to deceive. There's a couple passages I just want to turn our attention to. I've listed them for you so that you can both hear me read them and then also uh, consult them later. The first two comes from James. If you're feeling really confident about yourself right now and you think you're just doing a great job in life, read James and that'll be over. James is just not one of these really happy campers who's speaking to people who must be like me, just calling us on to greatness in the midst of my settling for mediocrity. So James 1.26, here's a great line. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, his religion is in vain. Anyone who thinks he's religious but doesn't bridle his tongue, his religion is in vain. That picks you right up, doesn't it? Wait, it gets better. James 3, verses 1 to 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. This is a real pick-me-up for me. (laughs) For you realize that we will be judged more strictly, for we all fall short in many respects. If anyone does not fall short in speech, if anyone does not fall short in speech, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body also. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide their whole bodies. It's the same with ships. Even though they are so large and driven by fierce winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot's inclination wishes. In the same way, the tongue is a small member and yet has great pretensions. Consider how small a fire can set a huge forest ablaze. The tongue is also a fire. It exists among our members as a world of malice, defiling the whole body and setting the entire course of our lives on fire, itself set on fire by Gehenna. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison, With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who are made in the image and the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. This can't be so, brothers and sisters. Does a spring gush forth from the same opening both pure and brackish water? Can a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine figs? Neither can salt water yield fresh. And as I was praying with what we're going over tonight, I just thought, again, in combination with the Eighth Commandment, this is a great opportunity for us really just to examine our own speech. The commandment calls us in a particular way to examine whether we use in the Lord's name with reverence, and we're going to come to understand it's actually much wider than that. But in a more generic sense, it just calls us to examine how we talk in general. And as we get to the Eighth Commandment, that'll become uh, more and more clear. A couple other quick passages. Psalm 34:14, actually beginning in verse 12. Come, children, and hear me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who of you desires life and takes delight in prosperous days? Well, that's us, hopefully. You want life? Want prosperous days? I'm up for that. Then keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. And then I've given you a set of other psalms that I'll let you look at on your own. Lastly, I just want to read something from the book of Sirach. Sirach, chapter 28, verses 12 to 26. If you blow upon a spark, it quickens into flame. If you spit on it, it dies out. Yet both you do with your mouth. Cursed be gossips and the double-tongued, for they destroy the peace of many. A meddlesome tongue subverts many. 
and makes them refugees among the peoples. It destroys walled cities and overthrows powerful dynasties. A meddlesome tongue can drive virtuous women from their homes and rob them of the fruit of their toil. Whoever heeds it has no rest, nor can he dwell in peace. A blow from a whip raises a welt, but a blow from the tongue smashes bones. Many have fallen by the edge of the sword, but not as many as by the tongue. Happy is he who is sheltered from it and has not endured its wrath, who has not borne its yoke nor been fettered with its chains, for its yoke is a yoke of iron, and its chains are chains of bronze. Dire is the death it inflicts, besides which even the netherworld is a gain. It will not take hold among the just, nor scorch them in its flame, but those who forsake the Lord will fall victims to it, as it burns among them unquenchably. It will hurl itself against them like a lion, like a panther, it will tear them to pieces. As you hedge round your vineyard with thorns, set barred doors over your mouth. Hear that one again. As you hedge round your vineyard with thorns to protect them from birds and animals that will destroy the vineyard, huh? so set barred doors over your mouth. As you seal up your silver and gold, so balance and weigh your words. Take care not to slip by your tongue and fall victim to your foe waiting in ambush. I think that's pretty sufficient to get us going on speech in general. If you think of the commandments as something like the tip of an iceberg... So when you hear the commandment, the Lord's giving us something like the tip. He's giving us the utmost of it in the Old Testament, huh? But then underneath that tip, which is the only part that's visible above the water, is this huge base, which is invisible, but which is laying the foundation for what is being manifested above. So it is with the commandments, analogously, that underneath the commandment that we hear mentioned in Deuteronomy or Exodus is an awful lot more which is part of the commandment which the Lord is giving to us. Why? So he can take away our fun? No. So he can make my life miserable? No. So he can help me grow in integrity. And once again, we're reminded, I think, as we look at the commandments, that freedom is a great burden. It's a great burden because I'm responsible for my life. And it would be a lot easier sometimes or a lot more convenient if it wasn't all on me. But it is on me with God's grace at work. The Catechism, if you haven't looked at this, divides the commandment up under three headings. The first is, the name of the Lord is holy. The second is, the taking of the name of the Lord in vain. And then the third is, the Christian name. We'll look at that in a second. Let's just start with some basics. What does it mean to use the Lord's name in vain? Well, the Hebrew expression can actually be understood in two different ways. The first is, in vain can be in empty fashion. Okay, that's what vanity is. It's just emptiness. Or it can also be used for falsehood, or it can be used in a lying way. So the commandment is either don't use the Lord's name emptily, or don't use the Lord's name in a lying fashion. So even more than using the Lord's name emptily, it's don't use the Lord's name for falsehood, for that which is not true, for that which is not real. And as we get to the end of what I want to talk about tonight, I think we'll see kind of how uncomfortably that can be revealed to us, at least for me anyway. It opens up kind of the breadth of the whole commandment or the iceberg underneath the water, so to speak. It's where this commandment, for me anyway, really hits home. The commandment has most immediately a juridical connection to it. So God is invoked at a trial either to ensure someone's innocence or their guilt. That's what this is really connected with in a primary way. 
That's why it's connected to the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not bear false witness. And that's also why this is particularly grave, because if under the Lord's name I use it falsely, someone who is innocent might be condemned to death or to punishment of some sort, or someone who is guilty might be let off. So it becomes particularly grave because justice is not done. My false testimony could lead to disaster for another person, or it could lead to undeserved reprieve for someone. Having said that, let's take a look at the catechism. The name of the Lord is holy. You ever had the experience where you're at dinner and you get a call, and this is before we could block all the people who were calling who still call even though we've blocked them, but they call and they say, Hi, is John there? And you go, speaking, Hi, John, this is Bob from, you know, Direct TV. And you go, who are you to call me John? It's not Mr. Ricardo or, you know, Mrs. Smith or Mr. Slobotnik. They use your first name. And if you're like me, all of a sudden it's this incredible encroachment upon not just my privacy, but intimacy. It's like, well, who gave you permission to use my name? You have that experience? Does it annoy you as much as it annoys me? And what's behind all that is our name is special. It's unique. Some people might be Dr. So-and-so, and their friends call them their first name. Other people call them doctor. My mom doesn't call me father. <laughs> she gets access, you know. And other people who I don't know come up to me and call me John, which I find to be just rude, to be honest with you, because they don't know me. And so they're trying to be informal in a way that doesn't belong. They wouldn't call their doctor by their first name. They would always show some respect. And it's not a rudeness to me. It's a rudeness to the office of priesthood. Other people who are really close to me, they call me John or whatever they call me. I remember when I was living in Washington, D.C., Washington's somewhat unique in that there isn't one area where the homeless tend to live. Washington has really wealthy neighborhoods and really poor neighborhoods all right next to each other, and you're kind of walking through them at the same time. And there's lots of homeless all around, and I was a priest at the time, and I didn't have any money, kind of like, no. And I got in the habit of not bringing money with me so that when someone said, hey, you know, you got something, I could be truthful and say, no, I have nothing. Or I'd bring my rosary in my pocket and say, I have this, and I'd hand my rosary. One day I remember walking through, and some guy came up to me, and I had my collar on. I think I did anyway. And he asked me for something. I said, I don't have anything. I'm sorry. And I looked at him, and please, God, this must have been the Holy Spirit. I just said, what's your name? And he kind of stood back and he says, what? I said, what's your name? And as he told me his name, it seemed anyway, and I wouldn't doubt it, that he hasn't heard his name said in weeks to all the people who are too busy to take the time to even look. He's just another person on the street, one of them, as opposed to a person created in the image and likeness of God, filled with dignity, who's got uniqueness to him. And when he said his name, he just kind of lit up. He said, you know, my name's Tom. And I said, well, Tom, I'm a priest, and I will pray for you by name. That's what I can give you right now. Not that it wouldn't have been better to give him something, too, but I just got in the habit afterwards now, whenever I encounter somebody who's homeless, of asking them their name, because it's one of the signs of our dignity, and they so often don't hear it. They're not addressed by their name. It's, here you go, buddy, or here you go. And that's not how you treat a brother or a sister who's lying there. The point in that story is when we give our name to someone, there's a sense of intimacy and a sense of trust and a sense of connection. That's why the catechism begins the discussion on the Lord's name is holy with this. The Lord has revealed his name to us. In doing that, that's a gesture of tremendous intimacy. He's let himself be known for who he is. He revealed his name Yahweh to Moses. Huh? Jesus reveals that God is Father. He's my father. 
And in granting me that access to call him that by the Holy Spirit who dwells within me, there is this connection and intimacy that has been created by God. And because of that, and because he is who he is, the creator of the universe, that name is to be treated with extraordinary respect. So how we respect his name is something of a measure of how we respect him. How we honor his name is something of a measure of how we honor him. John Henry Newman, the Anglican who converts to Catholicism in the 19th century, and there's a short quote in the Catechism where he talks about how we speak sometimes in church as if God really wasn't there, but it would be totally different if we knew he was there. We'd be attentive. We'd be careful of what we're saying. And the reality is, he is there. And so we need to speak when we're in church and when we use his name as if he's really there, and not just casually. Not frightened, but with a sense of awe and a sense of honor. So the Catechism going on in paragraph 2146 talks about the abuse of God's name. And this is what most people think the commandment means. They come in, they go to confession, or they acknowledge, yeah, you know, I use the Lord's name in vain. Which means, you know, they were out doing some work around the shed, they hit their thumb, and they went, oh, and they used the Lord's name improperly. Curious, by the way, that no one ever hits their thumb and goes, ah, oh, Buddha. <laughs> Isn't it? You ever notice that? Vashti or Agamemnon. Or, I mean, it's, it's always the Lord. Well, that should give you some insight as to who might be prompting that to be said carelessly, don't you think? It comes from hell. Another little parenthetical comment. I'm amazed how many men can't say the name of Jesus. They'll talk about the second person of the Trinity. They'll call him the Lord. They'll call him Jesus Christ. But to say Jesus takes something. I mean, Jesus has remarkable power to his name. Paul writes in Philippians that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bend on the earth, in the heavens, under the earth, and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. Every knee bends at the name of Jesus. Fulton Sheen used to say, we don't know what the devil looks like, all we know is that he must have a knee, because his knee is going to bend. And what a glorious day that will be to see him bend his knee in front of the one who crushed him. And he knows it's coming. The commandment does apply to that, by all means. That's a careless use of the Lord's name. It's using the Lord's name in an empty fashion. It also prohibits careless and improper speech about all those who belong to God, whether it's his bride, the church. You know, so I love God, but the church is so screwed up. Well, the church is his bride. Yeah, we're always in need of reform, but we better be careful how we speak about his bride, which is also his body. Also, the careless way that we might speak about the saints. Remembering that scripture says about Our Lady, all generations will call me blessed. Well, do you? Do I? That's scripture. All generations will call me blessed. We need to take a short break right now, but stay tuned to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, computer, smartphone app, or smart speaker, please know. We'll be right back with Father John Ricardo talking about the Second Commandment. on Double-Edged Sword, Cutting to the Heart of a Deceptive Culture. The Second Commandment with Father John Ricardo. Moving on in the Catechism, mentions promises that are made to others in God's name. So 
when I'm making a promise in God's name and I don't keep it or I break it, what I'm basically doing is I'm asking God to be a witness to a lie. God can't do that. God is truth. Continuing on, it, it speaks of blasphemy, which is what the Pharisees accuse Jesus of. Huh? That's what they bring him to trial for. He's committed the sin of blasphemy. And Catechism describes blasphemy as uttering against God, whether inwardly or outwardly, words of hatred, reproach, or defiance, or speaking ill of God, failing in respect toward him in one speech, misusing his name. And then it says again, this extends to language about the church, Christ's bride, the saints, and sacred things. That's a grave sin. It's a grave sin to utter, whether out loud or to will in my heart, the seed of decision for man and woman, the heart, to utter things which are defiant towards God or filled with hatred. And then there's a series of paragraphs, 2149 to 2155, which discuss oaths, the taking of oaths which misuse God's name, which includes perjury, huh? Obviously, we would see that's a huge uh, offense against the commandment. Where an oath is taken either with no intention to keep it or when after promising to keep it, I break the oath. And again, a false oath is asking God to be witness to a lie. And again, if you tie this to the Eighth Commandment and you understand that in a court of law, if I'm doing this, the result might be a guilty person is proclaimed innocent because I have not been truthful or an innocent person has been made guilty and I'm accountable for that. And then in case we get confused and think, well, that means then maybe we shouldn't take oaths in court. You know, I shouldn't put my hand in the Bible or swear to tell the whole truth, so help me God. Paragraph 2154 in the Catechism adds that it's possible to do that, and it cites two references from St. Paul, 2 Corinthians 1.23 and then Galatians 1.20, both instances where Paul, writing to the communities that he's writing, says, I swear before God, or as God is my witness, what I'm telling you is true. So because Scripture is kind of helping us understand the way to do this, we have to be careful not to become um, holier than Scripture and think, well, that I'm not supposed to take any oaths or that they're all forbidden. So those are the first two sections of the Catechism. The name of the Lord is holy, and then the taking of the name of the Lord in vain. And the last section is actually pretty interesting. It's on the Christian name. And one of the things that the Catechism reminds us of in here is the importance of giving a child a Christian name. We name a child either after a saint, or some Christian or human virtue. Well, we do that for a number of reasons, huh? Not only to hold up in front of our children as they're growing up an example of someone who's sincerely striven to live a great and heroic and noble life, but also to ask their intercession to call upon us in our life. It's great to have the name of John. I mean, there's countless St. Johns. I call upon them all. I need them all. But it's a real responsibility for pastors especially for parents, obviously, and for godparents to see that the children who are being presented for baptism have a name that's appropriate. Whenever I watch a football game or a basketball game and you're seeing the names of people who are playing, there's a line when you baptize a child that's always so-and-so, the Christian community welcomes you with great joy. And sometimes you try to picture, how would you say this? There was a guy who played basketball said years ago, his name, no joke, was God. That was his first name. Last name, Sham God. Played for Providence, I think. I'm just picturing, you know, being the pastor, welcoming him to the church, and what a great occasion this is, and God, the Christian community, welcomes you with great joy. <laughs> so give your kids a godly name, but don't give them the name of God. Huh? Don't name him Jesus or Eternal Son, or but don't name him Chandelier either. Give them a Christian name. After that, it mentions the sign of the cross. So it talks about signing ourselves with the cross. That is, we begin the day and we sign ourselves with the cross. That's a, a way to dedicate the day to the Lord. 
you know, again, we're human beings, we're not angels, we have bodies, we express ourselves physically, so gestures mean something. I shake hands because it's a physical way of saying hello. You have other gestures to communicate other things. But that's a physical gesture of saying hello. Well, when I sign myself with the sign of the cross, I'm doing a gesture to remind myself of what the Lord has done for me, to invoke the divine name, and to call upon the Lord's protection. There's a couple of early quotes, you know, early on in the church from the 2nd century as well as from the 4th. Tertullian, writing in the 2nd century, writes, In all our travels and movements, in all our coming in and going out, whatever employment occupies us, we mark our foreheads with the sign of the cross. So, you know, when you're at Mass and you hear the Gospel, and I don't know if people always know what they're supposed to do, but they just, it's like, okay, you rub something off your forehead, and then I got a little itch on my lips, and then there's some lint on my shirt, you know? What are you doing there? You ever know what you're doing? You're making the sign of the cross on your forehead, and on your lips, and on your heart. And there's different things people do. It's like, you know, may the Lord be in my mind and on my mouth and in my heart. Thomas Howard, I think it was, was another one of these converts to Catholicism. He's retired now. He taught English. There's a great book called On Being Catholic. And he says what he does is he always prays, may everything in my mind and in my mouth and in my heart that is not gospel be crucified. That's pretty powerful. That changes it from being some, you know, rote thing up here and then over here and down there. So the sign of the cross is an ancient gesture of Christians. St. Cyril of Jerusalem, writing a little bit after Tertullian, says, Let us not be shamed to confess the crucified. Let the cross be our seal, made with boldness by our fingers, on our brow, and in everything. So the Catechism helps us understand, as we talk about using the Lord's name in a holy fashion, that's one of the ways. And then lastly, the Catechism ends with a short paragraph on our own name, the uniqueness of our own name, and that it's known to God in a particular way. It marks us out as an individual. We talked a little bit about that with the telemarketer. All that looks pretty neat and tidy. I mean, probably doesn't apply to most of us. Huh? Well, wait, there's more. It gets better. This is probably not so earth-shattering to most of us up till now. But the commandment means not only don't use the Lord's name emptily, but even more so, perhaps, aside from using it in a false way to perjure, it means don't use the Lord's name for falsehood, for that which is not true, for that which is not real. Every deformed use of the name of God is meant here, and every use of the Lord's name in a way that is not in accord with reality. It includes every use of the name of the Lord in speech that doesn't correspond to the truth of God or to the truth of the person who's saying it. That might seem a little abstract, so now let's make it pretty concrete. How about at Mass? How many times, because things can become so routine or rote, do we say things which either we are not thinking about or which, in fact, do not correspond to the reality of where we are at the time? Pretty often, I think. I think most people break the second commandment when they go to Mass. I think that's where most people use the Lord's name, not only in an empty fashion, and I don't mean by that that everybody at Mass is using the Lord's name. I think that's where most people break the commandment. I have to catch myself over and over again to not let what I say become empty. And not only not to become empty, but in fact, is it corresponding to the reality of where I am at that particular moment as I come before the Lord? So is the liturgy and the, the words that I'm saying, are they really manifesting the fact that I am clinging to the Lord and that I'm serious about my conversion? Or is it empty show? Remember, the commandment's getting us towards integrity. 
That's what the Lord's offering to us. Integrity, wholeness, virtue. Am I living what I'm saying? Or are these just words which I say every week and in a couple minutes I'm out of here? So walk through the Mass, huh? We begin in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Did we think about it? Was it hastily done? Or am I really calling to mind, this is the instrument of my redemption, and it's a horrific instrument. (laughs) It's the most shameful death imaginable in the ancient world, if not the modern world. A man naked, exposed on a cross, in public view, and that's how God chose to die for me. When I do it, do I call to mind the divine name, or is it just quickly done without thinking? After the sign of the cross, now we got the Kyrie. Lord, have mercy. Is that where we really are? Are we really saying that? Are we really coming before the Lord in a position where we realize, remember the first commandment, that he is the Lord and I'm not, and I am entirely dependent upon you? And I think as we get older and older and consider, you know, standing in front of the Lord at the end of our life, our prayer gets simpler and simpler. The prayer for me is just, oh God, be merciful. Please be merciful. Are we saying that with conviction? Or is it just, well, that's the next part of the Mass and that's what we do? And then we sing the Gloria. Huh? Glory to God in the highest, peace to his people on earth. Lord to God, Heavenly King. Oh, mighty God and Father, we worship you. We give you thanks. You know, I mean, do we? I mean, are we worshiping him? Are we giving him thanks? Are we praising him for his glory? Or is it, again, just something we fly through, we call it to mind? The readings. People think they come to Mass to feel good. I personally don't. I'm trying to come to Mass to become good. And sometimes the readings don't make me feel good. I mean, say we had James. So we read James, and it's the word of the Lord, to which we all respond. Thanks be to God. Well, are you really grateful for what you just heard? Thanks be to God for the real pick-me-up there, buddy. Why would we thank him for that? Thanks, Lord, that you would care enough to correct me, that you'd care enough to call me to holiness, that you'd care enough to call me to integrity, that you love me as I am, but because you love me, you won't let me stay the way I am. Thank you for that. Thanks be to God. Or the gospel. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Are we really meaning that? Or is it praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ? How about the creed? Do we even know what we're saying when we say the creed? Light from light. You get these images of a couple of bulbs up there. True God from true God. Begotten, not made. I mean, people died for the creed, people. They really did. They died for the creed. Are we calling to mind what we're saying? How about, Lord, I am not worthy, but only say the word and I shall be healed. Again, is it a humble position of coming before the Lord? Of yeah, that's, that's the reality, Lord, is I'm not worthy. I know some places where they've changed this, where they actually say, Lord, I am worthy. I mean, stay away from that church. You're going to get lightning. <laughs> you know, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy to feed on God. you got to be kidding. Talk about hubris. Lord, I'm not worthy, but you just say the word and I'm going to be healed. Because that's who you are. That's what you do. You save. You rescue. You deliver. And if I'm coming to you with real contrition, and with real faith, and I'm really entrusting myself to you, then i got reason to believe you're going to do that in my life. You're going to make me whole. You're going to heal me. But I'm not worthy. How about the sign of peace? sign of peace can become, depending upon where you go, it's anything from you know ridiculously rigid to you might as well have coffee and donuts there. In fact, my brother went to church somewhere, and they did that. I think it was the Easter vigil. They took a break in the middle of Mass and had coffee and donuts, and they all came back. I thought, what in the world? That's too long. They can't sit this long. Let's have some coffee and donuts. Well, the purpose of the sign of peace is what? To prepare yourself. The Lord says on your way to the altar, if you realize you've got something against your brother, leave your gift, 
Go find your brother with whom you're not reconciled. Make peace, then come to the altar. Sign a peace to my sister who's sitting next to me. She's not, she's not up on the sanctuary, but when I'm sitting in the congregation, that's not who I need to give the sign of peace to usually. It's the person over there in the back of church who's been saying something or I've been saying something about. That's where I need to get up and walk over and go, the Lord's peace with you, really. I am really sorry. That's what it's about. We could do that as we come to the Lord's altar. Now, that doesn't create, I mean, that can create for some chaos, too. But I'd rather have that chaos, personally. That means we're being sincere in all this, that we realize there's some people here I'm not right with. And the Lord's given me grace right now to get reconciled with them, and I'm going to act on it. Now, it could be that it's your husband who's sitting right next to you, or your wife. So that's appropriate, too. But, you know, you have the little fight on the way over to the Mass, and, come on, we're late. <laughs> Truth hurts, doesn't it? <laughs> The first shirt looks fine. <laughs> How many times are you going to change? <laughs> what about a communion? Come forward for communion. Body of Christ. The blood of Christ. Amen. Or am I attentive to the Lord being present there in front of me, to which I respond, amen means this is true, I believe it, yes. Amen. And that's supposed to be proclaimed with tremendous boldness. It's no small thing to answer to, the body of Christ. I believe this to be true. Yes. Amen. And I want him, because I'm hungry for him. And above all, I think, which is what the title of tonight's talk comes from, is the Our Father. I mean, should we really pray the Our Father? What do we say in the Our Father? Your will be done. Am I really wanting the Lord's will done in my life? Well, everywhere except there. Nine out of ten ain't bad, is it? Or, probably most alarmingly to me, is um, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Are you sure we really want to say that? I mean, do we really want to tell God, treat me the way I'm treating so-and-so? I remember uh, a number of years back, probably was during Lent, it felt like the Lord just called to mind a person in my life. This was out of the blue. I think I'm going to bed and said, how about if I had that person judge you when you died? And it was like, oh, you got to be kidding. But it made me realize something's not right with somebody in my life. Either I haven't forgiven somebody, and if I haven't forgiven somebody, then I shouldn't pray this. He's going to take me on my word. Huh? If I'm telling him, do treat me the way I'm treating brother X or sister Y, he'll do it. So I know somebody who actually stopped praying the Lord's Prayer for something like three years, because they realized they were holding an incredible grudge against someone in their family. And they couldn't, with integrity, pray this. They didn't want God to treat them the way they were treating somebody else. And so as they refrained from praying this, they just kept praying over and over again, Lord, you got to melt my heart. you got to bring me to a point where I can forgive somebody. Which is not to say, hey, you know what, what you did, don't worry about it, no big deal. That's not forgiveness. Nor is forgiveness, hey, I feel so good about you. Or, you know, hey, let's go out bowling tomorrow night. I'm so glad. That ain't forgiveness. Forgiveness is an act of my will. It means that I don't will someone who has wronged me harm. My will for them is simply love. I will God to bless them. That doesn't mean I have to hang out with them. There might be good reasons not to hang out with them. They might show themselves as not deserving of trust. But on my part, I have to make sure that my will isn't holding something against somebody. Because if it is, then when I pray this, then I'm using the Lord's name emptily. What I'm saying is not in accord with who I am. And I think when we realize that, then the commandment actually really begins to open up and you go, Ugh! 
This is a lot more than I thought it was. Conclude this. Watch your speech. You can tame anything in creation except the tongue. (laughs) Try to tame our tongues. God gave them to us to bless him and to build each other up. Never forget, right before I was ordained, a, a priest said to me, you know, one of the greatest things that you can do as a priest, and it applies to all of us as brothers and sisters in the Lord, you know, is when you see something good in somebody, to kind of take some time, pull it out, and honor that person and go, you know, I just want to tell you, you have this in you. And it's really good. Because most of us never are honored. Most people don't know how to honor another person. They flatter them. Weddings are a great opportunity to show that. You know, or a birthday party, or uh, a wedding anniversary for your parents, or your kids, or something. And just say, you know what, let's just take some time to honor each other. You know, Dad, I want to really honor you right now. And then name something. When I was in a household of guys, uh, we used to do that every Saturday. We'd just go around the room and, you know, who would you want to honor? Well, I want to honor, honor Jeff, just for the way the joy of Jesus just seems to shine through him. I know he's going through some rough times right now, and he's not manifesting that. He's just manifesting someone who's got great confidence. And I just want to say, I see that. I'm really grateful for that. That helps me. So thank you for that. And we don't know how to do that. We almost never do that with each other. We're really quick to criticize. We're really quick to rip the shreds. But we're not quick to say, you've got this, and thank you for that. Thank you for letting the Lord work through you. I appreciate that. That's what speech is given to us for. And if we would do that, that would be real community. So maybe we can aspire to that. So watch our speech. Be truthful. Be truthful. Be honest with each other. huh? Sometimes that means saying difficult things. But be honest with each other. Use Buddha's name when you hit your thumb with a hammer. (laughs) I'm kidding. Use the Lord's name with great reverence, huh? Be really careful. And as we do that, understand that he's granted us intimacy, huh? God is not some unknown God. He's made his name known to us, both in Jesus, which means God saves, and especially Father. You know, to think that you and I could call the creator of the heavens and the earth Father... We take ridiculously for granted, I think, sometimes. Don't take that for granted. Father, which means I'm son or daughter. Huh? That's how he looks at me. Don't swear falsely. Watch what we say at Mass. And let's strive to conform to the words that we actually do say. Huh? We got more out of that than I thought we'd get out of that. My gosh, if we could all really ask the Lord for the grace to grow in speech, what a difference the world would have. If I just worried about what I said every day, and sought to honor people and to be truthful and to be honest and what a difference that would make. Thank you for listening to Divine Mercy Radio. Whether you're listening via radio, computer, smartphone app, or on smart speaker, we appreciate you tuning in to this week's double-edged sword, cutting to the heart of a deceptive culture. If you would like to comment on today's show or have an idea for a future show, please go to dvmercy.com and click on the double-edged sword icon. If you can help the mission of Divine Mercy Radio so that we can continue to bring you these great shows, please go to dvmercy.com and click on donate. You're listening to Divine Mercy Radio 88.1 KBDM Hayes, 88.1 KRTT Great Band, and 101.7 KJDM Lindsberg and Salina. If to Today you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. 